turn in your Bibles to Matthew 27. And I know that last week was Easter, um, but as I was reading, um, not only just for Easter, but I was, as I was reading and doing my regular study, I was reading the passages on Jesus' crucifixion, and I was particularly struck by an incident that occurred when Jesus was crucified. And it led me to reflect on all that happened, not just the crucifixion, but actually what happened around that event. And so while we're familiar with the accounts of, of Jesus' trial and his crucifixion and his death and his burial and his resurrection, I wanted to re- share with you what I reflected on as I was reading and studying on all this. We know that Matthew 27 gives us the account of Jesus' death. Now the other passages that also uh, tell us about that are Mark 15 and Luke 23 and John 19. But today I want to focus mainly on Matthew 27, but I'm also going to bring in the other scriptures because I want us to see the full account of of what happened on on Calvary that day. Now to keep you from getting swamped by all the scripture references as I move back and forth between Luke and John, I'm not going to give those to you today. I might mention that Luke tells us or Mark tells us, but I'm not going to give you verse and quotes. If you want those, please see me afterwards or call me or or send me an email and I'll be glad to give you the quotes or the the scripture passages from which I I took all these. Um, But otherwise I'd have you flipping back and forth through four different gospels and, and a bunch of different references. So we're going to avoid doing that today. Now, much in these passages is, of course, about the the death of Jesus. And it especially fulfills prophecy, whether it's prophecy in Isaiah or prophecy in the Psalms or all the way back to Genesis in chapter 3. And we see the direct comparison to Jesus and the Passover lamb. And we understand that at the crucifixion, it was God's outpouring of his wrath on Jesus, on his only son. Well, this morning, I want to focus on what happened to those who were there when that happened. Because it was an amazing thing as I was reading this. It struck me what an amazing thing happened at Jesus' crucifixion. You see, his death resulted in a miracle for some of those present. Some of them were changed. And some were not. This morning, I want you to see the transforming power of God's grace that was shown at the moment of Christ's sacrifice. In the opening chapters of Matthew and Mark and Luke, Jesus is brought before Pilate. He's already been taken before the Jewish council in what was a wholly illegal trial. The, the, The trial did not conform to Jewish law. It really was a plot just to kill Jesus. And the Jewish leaders had been planning it for years. They didn't like Jesus, and they wanted to take him out. And you know the story that after his betrayal, Jesus was first tried by the Sanhedrin and then the, or the Jewish council, and satisfied that they'd finally caught him in an act punishable by death, they sent him over to Pilate. And they made accusations against him before Pilate. But you recall that Pilate could find that Jesus had done nothing wrong. He found nothing wrong in him. He knew it arose out of the jealousy of the Jewish leaders. But nonetheless, he had Jesus scourged. This means literally whipped and beaten within an inch of his life. 
Pilate offered to let Jesus go free. In fact, he offered to instead let Jesus free and, and crucify Barabbas, who was a known insurrectionist, a murderer, a robber. But the Jewish leaders provoked the crowd to ask for the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus. Barabbas was the real threat to the community. But the Jewish leaders overlooked that in their hatred of Jesus. They demanded that Jesus be crucified. Now, Pilate is now threatened with a, a Jewish uprising and a call it maybe he's not um, faithful to Caesar. So he acquiesced to their demands. And he sent Jesus to the cross. And it's here that we pick up the story. So we're going to start in Matthew 27. And we're going to start with, uh, with verse 27 itself. So follow along as I, uh, as I read this. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put, on, and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait. Let's see whether Elijah will come down to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many." When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Truly, this was the Son of God. 
That was the phrase that struck me as I read this. The Roman centurion saying that truly this was the Son of God. There were many people present that day at Golgotha. There were the two condemned criminals who were crucified on either side of Jesus. The Roman soldiers, the Jewish leaders. John's own mother was there. I'm sorry, Jesus' own mother was there, as well as one disciple at least, the Apostle John. And there were many others who came and went and observed from a distance. This morning we're going to look at the first three groups, all of whom were participants in the crucifixion of Jesus. We had the robbers, the ones crucified on either side of him. The Roman soldiers who took him and nailed him to the cross and raised him up and divided his clothes. And we have the Jewish leaders, the ones who condemned Jesus, who sought to kill him. And it's among these three groups that God worked his greatest transformations. A robber who acknowledged Jesus as God. A centurion and Roman soldiers who declared Jesus to be the Son of God. They did not do this because of their own goodness. And they didn't do this because it was a logical thing to do. And they didn't do it because they had some astute perceptions. Now they declared Jesus to be God because of the transforming power of God's grace. Now recall from this morning's scripture reading how Jesus asked the disciples who people said who he was. Some thought he was John the Baptist. Remember, Herod had thought Jesus might be John the Baptist after he had killed Herod, and he thought maybe John had raised from the dead. Others thought he was Elijah. Some thought he was Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter, always the one who acted first or spoke first, he blurts out, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus called Peter blessed. He declared that flesh and blood did not reveal that to Peter, but his father who is in heaven. It was not human capabilities or human reason by which Peter declared that Jesus was the son of God. He didn't come to that conclusion because he was a smart guy. It was divinely revealed to him by God the Father. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. He said, no one can come to him unless it is granted by the Father. Now, Peter, I'm sorry, Paul writes in Ephesians that by grace you have been saved by faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God and not of works so that no one may boast. Grace is how God works. He chose Abraham, a pagan and an idol worshiper, to be the father of nations. He chose Israel, a small, insignificant nation, to be his chosen people. Jesus told his disciples that they did not choose him, but that he chose them. And it's not flesh and blood that revealed who Jesus was to the people present at his crucifixion. It was divine revelation. It was God's grace. There are three points I want us to consider this morning. The grace that transformed the participants at Jesus' crucifixion is an unmerited grace. It is an unexpected grace. And it is an unexplainable grace. So let's dive in and and look at what we mean by those. The first is unmerited grace. We know that grace cannot be earned. It's not a reward for something we've done or 
It's not a reward for something we haven't done. It's not something that's owed to us. Otherwise, it would not be a, a gift. The dictionary tells us that a gift is something that's voluntarily given to someone without compensation. If we had earned grace, if we, earned, if we had merit before God, then it would be what God owed us. No, grace is a gift. So you can't earn it by clean living or doing good deeds. You don't earn it by giving money to the church or helping the poor. You don't earn grace by being good at least 51% of the time. And you don't earn grace by being better than the other guy. You don't earn grace by being a good husband or a good wife or a good father or a good mother or a good son or a good daughter. I know you all know this, but from time to time, we need to remind ourselves of this truth. Lest we become like that Pharisee who prayed to God and said, thank you that I'm not like this tax collector over here. It's easy to slip into that. The robbers who were crucified with Jesus did not merit grace. Now, we're not told a whole lot about them. From the context, we know that they were evidently tried and they were convicted. And there was no offer by Pilate to release them. He did offer to release Barabbas, but he didn't offer to release either of those two whose names we don't know. The ESV, the English Standard Version, uses the word robber, but they might have been called insurrectionists or rebels or any of those terms. It seems to imply that they're people that just murder right out in the open. They rob right out in the open. They're not stealthy about it. This made them a particular threat to Rome. Rome did not brook rebellion. It didn't brook insurrection or, or crime like that. And their crucifixion would serve as an example to the others around them. And like many criminals, they were mean and abusive to the end. These guys were facing their own deaths. They were about to die. And yet there's no hint of remorse from them. They're not crying out. They're not, they're not apologizing. They're not begging for mercy. No, these criminals at the cross can only think of hurling insults at a man who I think they, they perceived as being weaker than themselves. Jesus had been scourged. He'd been publicly mocked at his trial. Now he's being mocked at his execution. He's up on the cross and they're calling out to him. He didn't defend or fight back. He didn't insult anyone. He was like, like a lamb. And I can imagine that by insulting Jesus, they felt some semblance of power. How many times do bullies feel good about themselves when they put other people down? And so I can imagine that that's what they were doing, showing they were bigger, tougher, better guys. But doesn't that sound a lot like all of us before God showed us grace? See, defiance is a human condition. We all want it our way. We want to be in control. We want to be in charge. This is a result of sin, and we're all guilty of it. How many people today facing eternal damnation hurl insults at God? We see it around us all the time. And these robbers, these insurrectionists, these rebels, they, they certainly didn't merit grace or mercy. They were killers. They were hurling insults at Jesus. They were reviling Him, even though they're being killed, even though they're in the same position as Him. It's still happening. They didn't merit grace. 
And neither did the Roman soldiers who were there. We're told that there was a centurion present at the crucifixion, so the contingent of soldiers was not insignificant. You don't send a, a sergeant with three officers when you have, when you have need of a larger uh, or a more senior officer. If the, the chief or the captain is present, you have a larger range of officers. We have a centurion present. A centurion was a Roman soldier who was in charge of 100 officers. And remember from our reading that there was a battalion at the governor's headquarters. This is a cohort of about 600 Roman soldiers who were at the praetorium or the governor's headquarters, and they all participated in mocking Jesus. All 600 of them were there for that. That's a large assembly. And it's likely that these soldiers who were at the cross participated. They would have observed the trial. They would have observed everything going on, and they would have participated in the abuse of Jesus. As you recall from the passage, they were spitting on him. And I can't imagine that someone just threw one spit at him. They were walking by and spitting on him in numbers. They were slapping him. And I don't think it was a line coming up and just hitting him on the face. I think they were coming up and walking around him and hitting him from different angles. They were kneeling before him in mock homage. Oh, hail, King of the Jews, making fun of him. I can imagine a group bowing down and giggling and laughing and being derisive with it. They were there when Jesus was dressed in a costume. They put a scarlet robe on him and they dressed him up as a king, a mock king. Well, a king needs a crown. So they took a bunch of thorns and they fashioned a crown on it and they drove it onto his head. Here's your crown, king. And a king needs a scepter. So they took a reed and they made it a scepter. So he's there with his crown and his scepter, and they're mocking him. And then they take that reed, that scepter they gave him, and they beat him on the head with it, the very head that had that crown of thorns, driving those, crown, those thorns deeper. They're beating him. They're laughing. King of the Jews. If these soldiers at the cross didn't have a hand in his scourging, they were certainly present and they were aware of it as they humiliated him, a man already beaten terribly. And after abusing him, they put his clothes back on him, and they lead him through the streets and parade him as he carried his cross to his crucifixion. They compelled Simon of Cyrene to carry Jesus' cross. This was not a, a voluntary act by Simon. He didn't doubt of pity for Jesus, get up and say, let me carry that for you. The text says that they compelled him to carry his cross. They had no problem picking a guy out of the crowd. You, come over here. And taking him away. Putting him under that cross. Today, we would scream police brutality if someone did that. But the Roman soldiers had no problems doing that at all. When they get to Golgotha, they nail Jesus to the cross. They offered him a, a mixture of uh, wine and, and gall or, or myrrh, according to one text. Now, this is a bitter herb that can be poisonous. In fact, some think that the hemlock that Socrates drank when he was executed was actually gall or myrrh. But it also has a sedative effect. Now, you may think that this is given in mercy because, well, they're going to nail him and they're going to cause him pain, so let's, let's give him something to calm him down and all that. Reality, it was poison. It was poison to his system. 
but it was also used to keep him from struggling. They gave the gall and the the myrrh to, to the people they were executing so it would calm them so they could nail them to the cross without having to fight them. Today in many prisons in death row, prisoners are given Valium to calm them before they're led away to their execution. It makes it easier to handle them. And this was no different than Jesus. But we know that Jesus didn't take that. He didn't want the sedative effects. He wanted to be in full control of his senses. Make no mistake, they were doing something harmful to Jesus for their own benefit, not to help him. There was no mercy here. And then nailing Jesus to the cross and raising him up, they divided his clothing among themselves. Now this was a common practice when they executed someone. They took their clothing and they they divided it up. They each took part of it. But they found that his tunic was woven of one piece. That was pretty rare and pretty valuable, and they didn't want to cut it up. So instead, they gambled. They cast lots. They rolled die. They they gambled to see who was going to win it. See, they didn't even offer the clothing or this tunic to Jesus' mother who was nearby. They kept it for themselves. And yes, this also means that Jesus was crucified naked. We see the pictures of the cross and he's got a loincloth on, but the reality is people were crucified naked to further humiliate them. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden, Adam hid himself. Why? Because he was naked. It was humiliation and they meant to humiliate. It was done to maximize the torture and the humiliation of the prisoner. Now sometimes as a concession of modesty, they would crucify women facing the cross. But they were still stripped of everything they had, bare before the world. And then after this, the soldiers sat down to watch him suffer and die. They just took their place, sat down comfortably watching over this. Now, perhaps because there were other people, one of the reasons they're doing this is to make sure nobody comes and frees the prisoner because there are some that, if freed, they could, they could live after that crucifixion. No, they went there to make sure that they died. They put a sign over them that said, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. And they watched while passers-by derided Jesus with, with taunts to the one who claimed he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. They said, he said he would say, if he could save himself, come down from the cross. And we're told that like the others mocking Jesus, they called to this beaten, bloody, naked, suffering man and said, if you're the King of the Jews, save yourself. All of these things they were doing. These were cruel, vicious men who did not merit grace. And then there were the Jewish leaders. These were the instigators behind the the whole thing. They were the ones who designed the plot to kill Jesus. We read in several passages that they conspired or sought a way to, to do the deed, but they were afraid of the people, so they bided their time. They They wanted to do it in in secret and private. They didn't want to make a big public spectacle because they were afraid for themselves. So they waited, and they waited, and they plotted, and they plotted until the hour that God had appointed. And then after trying Jesus in a mock trial in the middle of the night, they took him to Pilate, and they asked him to to sentence him. Pilate couldn't find anything wrong, and he told them. So he tried to release them. But these guys were not going to let that happen. They did not want Jesus released. 
So they're in the crowd, stirring up the crowd, telling Pilate, you know, we release Barabbas. We want Barabbas. So Pilate released Barabbas, and he sent Jesus to be crucified. These guys, these Jewish leaders went so far as to declare that we only have one king, it's Caesar. The Jewish people, who, if you recall earlier, had told Jesus they'd never been in subjection. Really? And now they're saying they have only one king, Caesar. Remember how they tried to trap Jesus with their question of, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Or was it not right to pay taxes? What should we do? Funny, they didn't acknowledge Caesar then, but they're acknowledging him now because it fits their end. And their whole motivation was jealousy. As I mentioned earlier, Pilate saw through that. He knew what their motivation was. And yet he sent Jesus to the cross anyway. Their plot was so successful that they showed up at the execution. They showed up at the site of Jesus' crucifixion. And what did they do? They objected to the fact that there was a sign on the top of the cross that said, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. That's what they objected to. That was their one complaint. They didn't condemn the torture the Roman soldiers had perpetrated on Jesus. They didn't condemn all the mocking that was going on to him. They complained because Pilate put a sign up there that said, this is the King of the Jews. And not only didn't they complain, they participated in the mocking and the humiliation. Luke reports the leaders as saying, He saved others, let him save himself as he is, if he is the Christ, the, son of the Christ of God, the chosen one. In Mark we read that they said, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. But you know, even then they weren't going to believe. They were always looking for a sign. They didn't believe Jesus when he healed the sick, when he healed the lame, when he restored sight to the blind. They didn't believe him when he cast out demons. In fact, they turned around and attributed his work to Beelzebul, the prince of the demons. They blasphemed the Holy Spirit. They didn't believe even when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Do you recall what they wanted to do about that? They wanted to kill him. They wanted to kill Lazarus. Matthew records the chief priests, scribes, and elders as mocking Jesus and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Here we have the Jewish leaders once again confronting the claims of Jesus. They acknowledged that he claimed to be the Son of God. But they wouldn't acknowledge that he was the Son of God. Jesus said that whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. These leaders definitely did not honor the Son. They didn't honor Jesus, so they were not honoring the Father. The Jewish leaders did not merit God's grace or his mercy. We have unmerited grace. And now we have unexpected grace. No one merited the grace. Not the condemned criminals, not the Roman soldiers, and not the Jewish leaders. 
But then something happened. The robber crucified alongside Jesus recognized him as God. Listen to what Luke writes in Luke 23, 39 to 43. The two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals. Wait a minute, started too early. Let me back up. Verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save him yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Where previously both criminals had reviled Christ, now one of them is rebuked by the other. It's been said that there are no atheists in foxholes. But how many of you have heard someone invoke the name of God, expecting to be saved, but not really believing in the one who would save him? Or worse, how about the one who mocks God's ability to save? If you're God, do something. This is nothing more than a challenge to God to prove himself. This is what the robber was doing, challenging Jesus to prove himself. He said, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the criminal whose heart was changed said to the other, have you no fear of God? Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 10? Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. This robber recognized that it was none other than God himself who the other robber was reviling. Do you not fear God? The very God who could destroy both body and soul in hell. Now pay attention to the rebuke that he gives because it is nothing short of miraculous. First, he pointed out that they were under the same sentence of condemnation as Jesus. They were going to die. It's been said that, or in the law, a dying declaration is considered to be true because you have no reason to harbor anything against the person that assaulted you or killed you. So even though you pass away, your declaration is admissible in court. These guys were going to die, and we hear a dying declaration. He pointed out that they were sentenced justly for they are receiving their due reward for their deeds. He didn't turn around and say, hey, this guy's innocent and so are we. He said, we're guilty. We deserve this. And we're getting what we've earned. And it's been said that the prisons are full of innocent people. Yeah, they declare that they were framed for their crime or that their rights were violated or you know, perhaps the police and the prosecutor lied about what they did. Or their lawyers were incompetent. But this criminal is admitting his guilt. It amounts to a confession. Right there, we're guilty. We're getting what we deserve. And if you know about confessions, you know John, 1 John 1, 9, 
what is it? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He confessed on that cross that He was guilty. A confession of sin is agreeing with God that you are wrong, that you are in error, that you have sinned, you have transgressed against Him. But He goes beyond merely declaring His own guilt. See, Barabbas was supposed to be the third guy on that cross. But Barabbas wasn't there. And this guy knew that Jesus was no Barabbas. The criminal declared that Jesus had done nothing wrong. This man has done no wrong. And then after confessing his crime, acknowledging Jesus, he looked at Jesus and he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's now acknowledging Jesus as king, recognizing Jesus' sovereignty, having turned to the other one and said, do you not fear God? Jesus told him that he would be with him in paradise that very day. And we consider this a confession, a repentance, and a salvation on literally this guy's moment of death. This criminal, this robber, this insurrectionist, and probably a murderer went from condemning Jesus to commending Jesus. Now, who could have foreseen that? Who would have figured that this evil guy who was out causing all kinds of mischief, deserving of death, would turn at that last moment and praise God and ask God for his mercy? It was unexpected grace that transformed him. A man who just 180 minutes prior to that expected to die a hideous death. He had no hope. But now, because of God's grace, he had hope of living with Jesus. But he wasn't the only one. Jesus and the criminals were crucified at about nine in the morning. At noon, there was suddenly an unexpected darkness that lasted for three hours. Now, this was not a solar eclipse. These happened only during a new moon, and the Passover was taking place during a full moon. And the, and the passage also says the darkness covered the whole earth. There's no eclipse of the sun that covers the entire earth at one time. You remember the one we just had a short time ago that cut a swath across the United States? They saw it in Oregon. What did we see in California? Maybe a little dimming of light, but we certainly didn't lose the sunlight. But this covered the entire world. It's, it's like a, a curtain came down. And I imagine this darkness would have been unnerving. Nobody expects this, and all of a sudden it is pitch black. The sun is not shining. You recall from many places in Scripture what blackness means. Recall the, the plague in Egypt. It was three days of blackness so bad that no one couldn't see in front of him. Hell is described as the place of darkness. And here is darkness on the earth. Interestingly, none of the Gospels records a word or an action taken during that darkness. They each record something said at the crucifixion, but none of them record a word being spoken or an action being taken. It's like God dropped a blackout curtain on the whole scene, on the whole world. And it was when His divine judgment was poured out on Jesus. We don't know what that looked like, but we know what its effect was. And when the darkness broke, Jesus uttered the cry, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani! 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The effect of God's wrath. And having hung on the cross for hours, Jesus was no doubt dehydrated. His throat would have been dry, his voice cracking, and some thought he was calling for Elijah. Someone ran to go get him a sponge that was a, a, a sour vinegar, a wine vinegar mixed with water, a very diluted solution. Others tried to forestall this from happening, even if it may seem like an act of kindness, which reality it wasn't. It wasn't really a kindness to do that. It was meant to prolong the life of the one suffering, to give him a little water and a little thing to rehydrate him because on the cross you're dehydrating. They just wanted him to suffer more, but they stopped that from happening. And they still mocked him. They said, wait, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him, even at the end. They had waited around through this darkness, this thick darkness, this unnatural darkness to be present just to be there while Jesus was suffering and dying. And then John tells us that Jesus said, I thirst. So now he was given the mixture of sour wine and water. His thirst slaked. He's now able to make a final declaration. Matthew, Mark, and Luke write that he called out in a loud voice. John records his words as, It is finished. These are not the words, are a cry of defeat, but of victory. It's an unexpected shout of victory that everyone around heard. His mission was accomplished. The debt of sin was paid. And then this was followed by Jesus' final words as were recorded by Luke. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And with that he breathed his last and he gave up his spirit. And now Jesus was dead. But then there's more unexpected events. Not just from the robber on the cross, but what was going on at the time? Suddenly the earth shook. The rocks were split. The tombs were opened. Talk about earth shattering. First the darkness, now a massive earthquake. And we're told the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. And we don't know which veil this was, whether it was a veil that separated the most holy from the holy of holies or, 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 we, or whether it was a veil that separated the Jewish court and the Gentile court. Either way, we know that the veil was torn from top to bottom. It was God tearing the veil and opening access. And he opened access to all people, Jews and Gentile. And as Pastor John shared last week, there was peace between God and man initiated by God as he tore that veil. There would no longer be a separation. Matthew tells us that, all the, that the tombs were opened up. He writes that after Jesus' resurrection, many of the saints who had fallen asleep came out of their tombs and went into the city where they were seen by many people. He doesn't give us any more information so all any of us can do is speculate as to who these risen saints were, what their bodies were like, and what became of them afterwards. The centurion and those with him experienced this darkness, the earthquake, the rock splitting. Now, they wouldn't have known about the veil, and the bodies weren't seen until after Jesus rose from the grave. But they were present to see and hear Jesus during his crucifixion and death. They heard the two criminals reviling Jesus. 
They heard the people walking by reviling Jesus. They heard the chief priests mocking. They were there and mocked Jesus himself. But they did not hear Jesus revile in return. Not during his trial. Not during his scourging and humiliation. Not during his crucifixion. What did Jesus say when they crucified him? You remember? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. What's this? He's asking forgiveness for the very people who are carrying out his murder. Forgiveness for the ones who scourged him, mocked him, spit on him, slapped him, and now nailed him to a cross. Who would expect that? Jesus told the repentant criminal that they would be together in paradise. Jesus, or John tells us that while on the cross, Jesus saw his mother and John. He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. To John, he said, behold your mother. Even while being crucified, Jesus looked after his mother. The centurion and the soldiers would have heard all of this. Matthew wrote that the centurion and those with him were filled with awe. When they saw the earthquake, they saw what took place. And they said, truly, this was the Son of God. Mark said that when the centurion saw the way in which Jesus breathed his last, he said, truly, this was the Son of God. Luke tells us that when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God. He said, certainly this man was innocent. Now let this all sink in for a minute. A robber on the cross said that Jesus had done nothing wrong. Now the centurion says that Jesus is innocent. A criminal and his executioner. Who would have expected that? And there's more. Not only did the centurion declare Jesus was innocent, he also praised God. A pagan Gentile serving in the army of a country with many gods, now praising the God. Who would have expected that? And there's still more. The centurion and the men with him, filled with awe, declared Jesus to be the Son of God. It wasn't just the centurion. Too many times we see in movies and in other things where the centurion is saying this. But it was the centurion and the men with him. Now, there may seem to be some contradictions here. Who said what? Who did what? Was it the centurion or the men? Did he say Jesus was the Son of God? Or, or, was, or did he say that he was innocent? And the answer is yes. See, when someone is filled with awe, they can't help but talk about it. Think about the time that you saw or experienced something spectacular or frightening. A beautiful sunset. Maybe a traffic collision. A catastrophe like a fire or flood. For those that are around for the Loma Prieta earthquake, people talked about it for years. It's not hard to imagine the centurion and his men repeating themselves to the people nearby. This was the Son of God. This was the Son of God. Oh, this guy was innocent. Oh, man, and let me tell you, this was the Son of God. I can imagine the awe and excitement there as they saw this happening. But Pastor Jeff, you say, what's so excited, what's so unexpected about this? Well, thank you for asking. Darkness, an earthquake, a gentle man not reviling others. Who could not see that Jesus was the Son of God and therefore innocent? And that's a good point. You're obviously recalling that in Matthew 14, Jesus recall, or called the storm that was threatening to swamp the boat in which he and the disciples were crossing the Sea of Galilee. As he calmed the storm, the disciples looked at it and said, Truly you are the Son of God. So if the disciples could make that declaration and, and they drew the conclusion from the way Jesus handled the storm, what's so special about that? Yet how many in this world today experience 
the same darkness, the same earthquake, the same rock splitting, the same statements made by Jesus and do not believe. Those, not everyone there present, believed after seeing all this. And today it's the same thing. People who experience these catastrophes don't suddenly believe in God. Oh no, it's climate change. Oh no, it's global warming. Oh no, it's because of this, that, or the other thing. They don't believe in God. Who else didn't believe? The Jewish leaders, for one. They didn't believe. See, unlike the robbers and the soldiers, they made no statements about Jesus' innocence or his deity. In just a few verses later, Matthew 27, 62 to 65, they referred to Jesus as an imposter. They told Pilate that Jesus had said he would rise after three days. And they were worried that the disciples would steal Jesus' body and perpetrate a fraud. So they asked for and received a guard. And then Matthew tells us in chapter 28 that after Jesus' resurrection, the Jewish leaders themselves perpetrated a fraud by inducing the guards to say that they had fallen asleep and somebody stole the body. They weren't changed. The reaction of sinful men is not unexpected. It is the transformation that is. A confessed robber, a Roman centurion and a group of Roman soldiers known for their evil and their cruelty. No doubt they had seen others die and remained unchanged. And they didn't expect that day to be any different. But now they were confessing Christ. They were unexpectedly changed. It was grace that transformed them, not flesh and blood. It was God who revealed the truth to them. It was an act of unexpected grace. Unmerited grace, unexpected grace, and unexplained grace. This unmerited, unexpected grace has this other component, unexplainable. But you say, wait a minute, Pastor Jeff, didn't you just explain how they were saved? Thank you for asking. We have seen how grace is unmerited. None of these deserve the grace that they were given. None of them expected to be changed. But while some of those present at Jesus' crucifixion were changed, not all of them were transformed. Only one of the two criminals who were executed with Jesus was transformed. Only one was saved. The other reviled him up to his death. The Jewish leaders present were not transformed. In fact, they continued to work against Jesus after his death and resurrection. They went so far as to tell Peter and John not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. They had the apostles thrown in prison. They stoned Jesus when he preached the gospel to them. I'm sorry, they stoned Stephen when he preached the gospel. So your question instead might be, if some were saved, why weren't they all saved? I mean, he transformed and saved one thief. Why didn't he transform and save both of them? He transformed and saved the centurion's men. Why didn't he transform and save all the soldiers of the battalion? Why did he transform the Gentile soldiers and not the Jewish leaders? Well, God tells us that he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. We know from Romans 9 that he chooses one over another to demonstrate his purpose of election. He chooses to save some and chooses not to save others so that the riches of his glory might be made known. But he does not tell us why he chooses to save a particular person or a particular people and not another to demonstrate that glory. What he does tell us through the Apostle Paul is that it's not our place to question him. For reasons that cannot be explained, he chose to transform and save that robber, that group of soldiers, and that centurion. For reasons that cannot be explained, God did not choose to save the other criminal, the Jewish leaders, 
in addition to or instead of the ones he saved. His grace is unexplainable. So what does this mean for us? What do we take away from this? Well, let me share some applications with you. First, it was only through God's grace that a criminal, a centurion, and some soldiers were transformed from those who hated Jesus to those who confessed him. This transforming grace is unmerited. The criminal on the cross was a robber and likely a murderer who reviled Jesus. He was a sinner who did not deserve to be saved, but God transformed him. The Roman soldiers were the cent- were, and the centurion were, who reviled and tortured Christ and put him to death were sinners who did not deserve to be saved, but God transformed him. The Bible tells us that we are sinners from the womb who do not deserve to be saved and that we are not saved by our good works. God saves undeserving sinners like us. This thought should drive us to share the gospel with anyone and everyone with no distinction for what they have done or not done in their lives because there is transforming power in the unmerited grace of God. This transforming grace is unexpected. Because it is unexpected, we cannot write off a person, no matter how evil or lost we think he may be. If God would save those who seek to harm him, he can save anyone. Indeed, he saved a young Pharisee named Saul, who actively sought the death of Christians. We know this man as the Apostle Paul. Paul did not expect to be saved, did not expect to encounter Jesus when he was on the road to Damascus to arrest Christians. We are all born enemies of Christ. And if you have faith in Jesus Christ, he saved you. But you had no right to expect it. This thought should drive us to share the gospel with everyone and anyone, regardless of whether or not we think God might save them. There is transforming power in the unexpected grace of God. And there is transforming power in grace which is unexplainable. If through grace you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, can you answer why you were chosen for faith? It's not because of something you did or didn't do. The Bible says you were dead in your trespasses. Dead men can do nothing to save themselves. And that includes believing. Someone had to rescue you. And only God could do that. And the Bible says He chose you before the foundations of the world, before you were ever born. And only God can explain why he chose you. He has not chosen to give us an explanation of why he chose you or any other person in particular. He says he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. He saves whom he will save to demonstrate his glory. Since we do not know and cannot explain why God demonstrates his glory by giving saving grace to some and not others, we should share the gospel with everyone and anyone and leave the results to God. There is transforming power in the unexplainable grace of God. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are a recipient of transforming grace, His unmerited, unexpected, unexplainable grace. And so I ask you, are you grateful today? Do you express your gratitude to God by proclaiming Him the Lord of your life? And finally, today you might be hearing these words, but have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness 
of your sins. Perhaps you think you've done too much wrong to be saved. Perhaps you don't believe there is a God. Perhaps you think you don't need to be saved because you're a good person. Perhaps you're running from God. You are no different than those who are present at Christ's crucifixion. Today might be the day you encounter unmerited, unexpected, and unexplainable grace. Grace that has the power to transform a criminal, a centurion, a group of soldiers, and transform you. And if you think so, I or one of the other pastors would love to talk with you more about a relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't pass this up. There is transforming power in grace of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is your grace that saved us. We know we don't merit it. We don't come to a realization of who Jesus Christ is. Our God. As Thomas said, my Lord and my God when he saw the wounds in Jesus. Father, let us confess Jesus as Lord and God. Father, I pray for all those present, those who are saved, that they come away with a renewed gratitude that your grace, unmerited, unexpected, and unexplainable, was shown to them. They don't know why, but they're grateful for the grace of God that saved them. Father, for those who aren't saved, I pray that that you enlighten them, open their eyes and their hearts to understand the gospel, to understand the sacrifice Jesus paid for their sins. Father, we commend all of this to you. In Jesus' name, amen.